0: For most of human history, people have argued about wealth inequality and have framed it as a moral issue and have blamed and shamed wealthy people for being selfish or greedy. But several hundred years of this conversation don't seem to have worked because today we have the biggest wealth inequality in the world that we have ever seen in all of history. And so it's time for a new conversation about this, one that recognizes our existential threats to humanity, which could make civilization fall apart on us. And amid these existential threats, we have to deploy resources effectively toward these problems or else. That's the new conversation we need to have. Today, to unpack this and think about it, is with us John Lefebvre, who is a really smart, eclectic guy who has his own, his own personal experience with wealth, having uh, made a lot of money years ago and lost a lot of money and given away a lot more money. Um, he has a really interesting, unique perspective that can help us think this through. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi, friends. I'm Shelby Murtis. Welcome to the Joy of Saving the Human Race. Or welcome to the Human Survival Podcast. We're not sure yet because we're in the middle of changing our name so uh we're changing the name of the show because i with a couple other teammates i've recruited are starting a brand new organization called the human survival project this is a global grassroots effort to get citizens around the world pushing their governments to transform the united nations so that that body is capable of handling the global threats to humanity that we're facing so um, in future episode, I plan to spend some time explaining this new organization to you and tell you what it's all about. Um, but for now, we're in the middle of this name change. We're making a new logo and new branding and changing the YouTube channel and the podcast and the website and all this kind of stuff. So depending on the timing of when you see this, it might be the Joy of Saving the Human Race or it might be the Human Survival Podcast. Either way, I think you'll like it a lot. Uh, a rose by any other name is just as sweet. So uh, here we go. Um, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Um, we're going to talk largely about wealth inequality in the world. Um, it's not only a moral issue, it's actually an existential issue for humanity to survive. We need to deploy a resource as well, and we're currently not doing that. So, today's guest is well-equipped to help us talk about this, as you'll see. Uh, we're here with John Lefebvre. Um, really interesting, smart, eclectic guy. Um, he's had a really interesting life so far. So, over his years have included a lawyer, entrepreneur. He's a musician with two studio albums under his belt. He has authored two books. He's a climate activist, a philanthropist. Uh, He was a co-founder of dsmog.com, which does investigative journalism to counter misinformation that's out there about climate change and other environmental issues. He's been a founding director of the David Suzuki Institute, which pushes uh, pushes for solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises that we're facing. Um, And he's a founding funder of the Dalai Lama Center for Peace and Education in Vancouver. A lot of really interesting things. Um, And listeners, I just want to let you know that I'll link in the show notes to some of John's fine work that I've just
1: described. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Shelby. It's great to be here. We're opposite sides of the continent, so uh, it's an amazing thing (laughs) How things have changed in my lifetime. You know, you used yeah. to have to talk and then wait for three minutes for it to go along the phone wire and then come <laughs> back. Remember? <laughs> Remember phone wires?
0: <laughs> yeah, here we are right now doing this. Yeah. So, after that long eclectic introduction, maybe the first question should be Is there anything you have not done? You seem to have done a whole bunch of interesting things in your life. It's not a real well,
1: common sort of a life. Um, there are lots and lots of things I haven't done, but uh, um, the um, my life has been very, very full. Uh, I I haven't achieved eternal enlightenment. Okay, <laughs> but you can still working. It's that. still on, it's still only about ten o'clock here. <laughs> right, right. We got time. Keep working. Could be any moment now. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's an interesting question, but you know, we could. Uh, I'm. You know, I've. Uh, I, I I could have done a lot more, and um, I'm. I've, I've. 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 done way more than enough of the things I'm ashamed of, and um, uh, and not enough of the things I'm not. Yeah. And you have plenty of time left. You'll come up with 12 more careers,
0: you know, uh, with your time remaining. So,
1: that's um, one of my songs has that lyric I was, uh, I'm on my 14th job in my fifth career. Right, right. Yep, exactly. So, the part of your life that
0: inspired me to have this conversation with you is um, basically around wealth inequality in the world um, that we're going to talk about. And what makes your life story interesting is that you um, were very fortunate with some business endeavors. You made a lot of money. Um, You lost some money. You gave away a lot more money. And you've sort of, your life has contained kind of two sides of this having wealth and then not having wealth and then willingly giving away a bunch more. And could you just describe that part of your story and and what happened there?
1: Well, how I came to wealth was that um, I was a lawyer. uh, And um, I've repented myself of that since. So people, uh, please give me a chance and keep on listening, notwithstanding that I've been a lawyer. (laughs) Um, And I had a client who uh, um, was uh, in, you know, the late 90s. Uh, who uh, had some interest in entrepreneurial things. And uh, he was aware that people were uh, beginning to gamble on the internet. And it occurred to him by you know, various experiences that um, if somebody brought some uh, responsibility, reliability, security, professionalism to the money transfer side of the online gaming industry, that that would make a good little business model. Uh, Steve Lawrence was my partner's name. And he came to me as a client. So that's that, that's how we met. Um, Steve asked, he was busy with some, you know, small time real estate development things he was doing and uh, asked me if I'd help husband it along. And I thought, great, you know, here's a chance for me maybe to get back up to, you know, network zero. <laughs> and uh, so we started this business that was a lot like PayPal for online gambling, uh, which put us uh, offside, Some are arguably offside, uh, Uncle Sam uh, and some other jurisdictions as well. Um, But over the period of about three years, uh, NetTeller was the name I came up with for the company, NetTeller.com. And uh, um, over the period of about three years, uh, we uh, achieved a a following that was so vast that, uh, you know, we went public on the London Stock Exchange uh, in about 2004 four or five, I think. Uh, We started the business in 99 or 2000, but after about 2004, we were public on the London Stock Exchange and we had um, uh, uh, market capital uh, uh, of around $2 billion, which was a staggering thing. I owned about 27% of that. a few years later, two thousand six or seven, I guess it was. We were arrested by uh, the, the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, and at that time we were halfway through a fiscal year, and uh, we were tracking to transfer fourteen billion dollars, mostly between American uh, gamblers and uh, offshore sports betting sites. In those days, um, which is uh, fourteen billions, pretty big hairball to cough up. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: yeah then you know uh during that time you know uh sports betting had been the primary thing but then online poker uh you know came came to everybody's consciousness and that was huge that was much more vast even than poker but or, than the sports betting so anyways we were arrested my net worth went down by about 95% overnight <laughs> and uh um, but i'm still very very comfortable you know, um, please uh, don't cry for me, anybody, including Argentina. <laughs> um, the uh, the experience that I had from that kind of wealth was, uh, um, I'm going to say two things about it. Firstly, that I was very fortunate that it came to me when I was older. I was around 50 and I would, you know, I spent most of my life as more or less a hippie and I would, you know, was pretty attuned to um, what makes a person actually important and what does not so i was not fooled too much by that part of uh, being wealthy uh, and i was always aware of um our responsibility and we we're we live in a very very privileged society but since i was quite young i was aware of our responsibility to people in the world that were less fortunate so um in in certain ways that kind of wealth couldn't have happened to a nicer guy <laughs> but it could have happened to one who was less foolish too and I I did waste quite a bit of money, but um, I I gave away as much as I wasted and, and and more so when I was when I appeared at sentencing in New York, uh, His Honor heard from my counsel that uh, from my attorney that um, up to that point in around two thousand and eleven I had uh, I was able to verify well over fifty million dollars in, in in gifts. Um, some portion of that were to, were to tax, was to tax deductible charitable organizations, but I, I'm going to say uh, Shelby that I think more than that was not, it was just, you know, money to people who needed it and couldn't reach financing other ways. Um, it was a great blessing for me, you know, I was, uh, the payoffs of, of generosity are vast, you know, they're wonderful. And, uh, they, um, I got them in spades. And you know, since then I've been trying to encourage other wealthy people to uh, to experience that that high too. Money's a little bit like dope. I read this in a book. I don't know any about it personally, right? <laughs> but you know, you the, the the more of it, the more of it you get, the more of it it needs to make you high. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, you're just looking for and, the next dopamine hit.
1: And I, I was um, I was pretty attuned to that, and so um, I was able to treat it with a bit of nonchalance and uh people were kind of amazed by that but uh, it was easy for me because i'm you know at, at, at any given time there i it was hard for me to foresee ever having to work again <laughs> you know with that kind of money and you know and that still is my outlook you know i'm i'm 70 now shelby and i'm uh you know you're supposed to say oh, you don't look 70 and then <laughs> you don't look um, 70. that's <laughs> <laughs> very good <laughs> um I'm, I'm quite comfortable and probably will be for the rest of my life and I'm, I'm not the man I used to be in the sense that I can't be as uh, um, uh, you know um, generous uh, uh, but you know I still have you know a few thousand dollars for anybody who needs it <laughs> right, right. Um, and 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 take great joy in that you know it's a it's a uh, it's a blessing and a curse but a little bit a little bit less of a curse for me because I wasn't too hypnotized by it, like some wealthy people are.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, with this conversation, um, with this work that I do, wealth inequality is just a big part of it because that dynamic seems to be a driver of so many of our existential threats that humanity faces. And I want to jumpstart a new sort of public conversation about it. Because I think often when these issues around, like, the haves and have-nots come up, it's framed in this moralistic sort of way that people have argued about for centuries. I mean, go back to the Bible, and Jesus was railing about, like, wealthy people and, and being unfair with it. And we've had this same, like, moral conversation for eons, and it hasn't fixed anything. Like, here we are still with the widest wealth inequality the world has seen. And so, that conversation somehow doesn't seem to be working. And what I would like to focus on is the fact that now humanity is facing these existential threats, like climate change, the destruction of nature, you know, more pandemics are likely in the future, Um, there's advanced technology that is harmful... Um, There's the climate-driven migration that is likely to happen and be incredibly destabilizing. And so all these critically important things might really unravel society and make everything fall apart. Yet we're not spending the resources on them that are necessary to solve the problems. So we go to solve these problems and our politicians say, well, no, we can't. We can't afford it. We don't have enough money. And the best our society has pulled off seems to be some intermittent charity by some wealthier people, but we're just not putting the resources where they're needed. So, at the same time, we have these horrible threats, but there's plenty of money in the world. Like, there's actually not a shortage of money. It's just all being held by certain people. So... This is the kind of new conversation I'm hoping to inspire. Um, am I on track here? I mean, would you oh, agree yeah. with this? Do you want to adjust my thinking at
1: all, or uh, maybe maybe in a, in, in, in a, in a way, um, I think uh, I think wealth I think wealth is infinite. Uh, you know, I've, 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 and I've and I've been over this with some pretty. Um, uh, uh, Old style liberalism, free 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 enterprise, capitalist, libertarian sort of fellows, and they agree with me that you know that um, uh, wealth is as uh, is as infinite as is human creativity, you know, uh, and you know it's, it it is growing at a at, at a at a, a rate that um uh, that outstep outstrips our ability to spend it. Um, I think implicit in the way you framed it, uh, Shelby, is um, kind of a, a, a maybe a notion that uh, re- resolving those things is dependent upon the will of the wealthy, and 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 uh, that's partly true. <coughs> Excuse me, but the I think the true answer to the problem that you've identified is. Uh, um, is more public than that. It's more uh, general, it's more community than it is on the basis of individual principles. Um, I encourage wealthy people and everybody else to be as generous as they can because the payoff is so um, uh, immediate and uh, long lasting. Uh, We can talk about that as we go forward here a little bit. But um, one of my key things that I like to remind people is that constitutional democracy Uh, has provided ordinary people with the most powerful tools ever invented by our human species to control the selfish wealthy and those 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 are the powers to tax and to regulate Mm -hmm. yeah i agree and the extent to which selfish wealthy fear them is evidenced by how much money they spend to maintain those levers of power unto themselves Huge expenditures on um, right-leaning law schools and you know um, business academies and all and uh, you know they support all kinds of information outlets that that um, that you know that uh, they support financially all kinds of outlets that uh, um, you know don't interfere with their private ownership of money. Um, every time we have an election. In the West, I'm going to say North America and probably all of the West, there's this 35% that always shows up, no matter what. And it's the selfish, wealthy, and all of the people who um, uh, suckle, suckle at their breasts. <laughs> um, and, you know, they all with that, the number of people who, I think broadly speaking, we can define them as conservatives, although in a way that's kind of unfair to conservatism because conservatism has got a bad name these last 20 years, largely because of what's gone on in your, in your country. I'm in Canada now for people to know. Yeah.
0: Um, And I'll also note there are plenty of wealthy Democrats with the same behavior. So it goes both
1: ways. That's true. That, that is true. Uh, so I think that, um, the most important thing that we can do is encourage young people to take back those levers of uh, constitutional democratic power. Uh, those 35% always show up and vote. And the only thing that's a variable is how much of the, the, the 65% show up and vote. And unfortunately, about half of them always decide to go mountain biking instead <laughs> or whatever, whatever it is people do now rather than line up to vote. Lining up to vote in America, incidentally, is horrendous. You guys really have to get a grip on that. When we walk into our place to vote, we walk in, we wait five minutes, we vote and we walk out again. This lineups thing that you guys have state to state is just atrocious. It's so primitive and it's calculated to help the selfish wealthy because those 35% get in line and they stay there. And the 65% are, "Eh, you know, this is what a dumb arrangement this is. Yeah, Yeah. So anyways. If we can get just three quarters of that sixty five percent to come out and vote in America, you'll never see another Republican government, not at the federal level, you may at the state level. but because as soon as you know as soon as they can overwhelm the filibuster, uh, more or less fair thinking people are going to pass uh, voter rights legislation. Um, you know, there'll be no more gerrymandering, there'll, there'll be no more like thumb of the selfish wealthy on the scales of power, <laughs> right? And, and, and the 65 to 70% of people who are fair-minded about humanity, um, more fair-minded about humanity than they are about property, <laughs> um, will rule. What will happen when we do that is something like Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. And that's all we need to make everything fair. We just need it in the whole world. But once one country, once America does it, the rest of the world will follow. And the reason they'll follow is because, first of all, it's really great tax policy, <laughs> right? And you know, it's politically acceptable tax policy. And uh, also because it's the right thing to do. So when I hear the wealthy people whining about, you know, oh, 2%, that's you know, highway robbery, 2% above $50 million. You know no they wouldn't even notice there's an interesting thing in the paper that i read last week um about how you know this uh uh Be- bezos's ex-wife uh how she made a name for herself by giving away so much money um well she makes about three times as much as she gives away just sitting back doing nothing that's just the way money works so please don't don't buy that taking 2% from Elon Musk is going a year is going to hurt him. He, he won't even notice because he, he doesn't make 2% a year. He makes 20% a year or 30% a year. Those guys can afford the money. So if we have a wealth tax, right, what does that do for us? Well, first of all, it removes our responsibility to those less fortunate from the, uh, you know, private decision-making process of wealthy people. There is a fundamental basis of provision that we should be making to everybody in the world. Everybody in the world. And that fundamental basis, it's not equality, but it's equality of the fundamental basics. I call them universal rights. They're the same things that you and I, the benefits that you and I have from what we call freedom. You know, uh, some of them we don't really think about too much but let me go through the list here and maybe you'll find it interesting Universal rights to which everybody on the planet that's a human being is entitled they include security integrity of the person, reasonable access to food clothing and shelter, reasonable access to the tools of self-improvement to the tools of health care to the tools of justice and to the tools of basic finance and reasonable access to a healthy environment. We can provide all of those things for that 2% of a wealth tax to everybody on the planet. When we do, and a number of things will happen, but the most important thing that happens will be that the people who have the vote in democratic countries are going to understand that that power is in the, in, in the hands of right-thinking people, and it will get mount landslides of support we'll get voting at the rate of 90 percent because all of the people whose lives are developed and here's the important thing about this americans are kind of like um ball shy about generosity you know they think you know well you know 250 years ago adam smith thought that um the government wouldn't have to take care of people because good men will good men will it's a very beautiful idea that adam smith had he said that if good men just do the things that are in their own best self-interest then all those problems will never occur because good men will look after poor people and now we've come to a place in america where you can't give a guy 400 bucks during covid or else you're going to make him a dependent
0: mm-hmm.
1: so yeah. there's a very very different view of human nature between what adam smith thought of human human beings you know 250 years ago uh, and what we think of human nature now 250 years ago we thought if you give people stuff you know they'll take care of themselves now we think if you give people stuff they're just gonna do you for it and I think what we need to do is we have to grow up severely and very very quickly in this one very particular and very very important sense just because somebody is going to beat you for it you know, say 20% of the people are going to beat you for your generosity, 80% will not. And 80% will take what we provide to them, which, which I think they all have coming, and They'll run with it, like people who have integrity. They'll build better things for their families. They'll work with You know, they'll they'll make things work. They'll educate each other. They'll, they'll you know, they'll in, enjoy their, you know, they d- develop their communities. All of those things will happen. And we have to understand that, and here's the key point, that just because 20% or whatever the number is, they're going to beat you for it, it does not, does not exonerate us from our responsibility to the 80%. So let's get over that and let's understand. Let's try to imagine again that five, you know, uh, you know, eight people out of 10 that we're generous with, eight people out of 10 that we're generous with are going to be responsible and grateful and make something of themselves when we give them the education, the access to health care, the access to basic finance and all those things. Some of us are going to beat beat us for it, but that's life. That's the way, that, that is human nature. About some number of us, 10% or 20% of us are irresponsible, you know. <laughs> but well, that irresponsibility does not forgive us our responsibility to the remainder. Yeah, yeah.
0: And there are multiple ways to redeploy those resources. You know, so there have been, in recent years, some really interesting programs that have just given poor people money directly you know, either in the U.S. or in in poorer countries, Um, instead of going through various social programs and such, it's just, here, have some cash, make your life better. And and data from those programs shows that people use it really well because they have actual needs. They don't just sit around and not work. They don't waste it. They don't do drugs. They don't, you know, all the things that people um, say they're going to do, they actually use it responsibly and move their life forward. You know, Um, but then there's also the many sort of collective needs that we have. I mean, on these various existential threats, we're not going to solve climate change if poor countries cannot afford solar panels and wind turbines and electric cars like other countries can. Or we're not going to save nature from destruction if poor people have to consume nature to make a living. You know, like in Brazil, they're just tearing down rainforests because they're just trying to make a living and feed their families. You know, that's a poverty-driven thing. Or we're not going to solve pandemic threats if we can't have basic health care in poorer places of the world where people can't get vaccines or other treatments or, you know. It's like these, these poverty issues, it's not just bad and wrong, it's dangerous, because we're not going to solve these problems otherwise, you know? Shelby here, just pausing this fine conversation with John for just a moment. Um, Fast forward a couple days, I'm editing this episode, and I'm realizing that I wish I had inserted into the conversation just a little bit of data, so I'm going to do that now. I want you to know this data so that you have a sense of the scale of the large wealth inequality in the world that we're talking about. So one uh, data point is that the richest 1% of humans in the world own almost 46% of the world's wealth. 1% of the richest owning 46% of the world's wealth. Now go to the other end of the scales, look at the poorest people in the world. About 55% of the poorest people in the world own about 1% of the wealth. That 1% of the wealth is shared by 55% of the world's poorest people. So we know that in the places where those poorest people live, they're going to be underfunded and unable to handle the costs of dealing with our existential threats to humanity that threaten all of us. Another data point, 10 of the, the 10 most wealthy billionaires in the world, if you pool their assets, they'd have about $1.5 trillion dollars that is larger than the GDP of several countries, even several large countries, including Brazil, Australia, Spain, Mexico, Indonesia. These are large places. And so those 10 men own more than the entire annual economic output of each of those countries. So zoom in for just a second on Brazil. Brazil contains most of the Amazon rainforest, which is critically important for its own sake because nature is good, but also in managing our climate. We desperately need that rainforest to stay intact so that it can absorb carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. But instead, people, in order to make a living, are tearing it down for wood or farming or whatever else. Those 10 billionaires could have an enormous impact on the economy of Brazil if they chose to. Those 10 billionaires could choose to buy the rainforest. They could hire all those people who are now destroying it to instead protect it at an even better wage than they're currently making. That's what those 10 people could do if they chose to. But they're not. Here we are. All right, back to the conversation.
1: I think uh, our young kids these days, we're, we're giving them a, um, a, a really good experience <laughs> about what happens with selfishness, what happens with ignorance, what happens if if, if we let selfishness and ignorance reign. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, kids are not stupid. They understand what's going you know the selfish people are, keep, are hoarding things unto themselves, and uh, the the effect of that uh, is, um, you know, well, there's two two main effects. One is everybody's poor, mostly, and and everybody disrespects power, dis disrespects authority because authority is not working for them.
0: Yeah, but
1: that will all change as soon as we embrace the authority make it our own again and make it work for everybody and then you know and, and what that you know what, and dis disallow that attitude that so many of us fall into Shelby and that is you know um you, that what's that one where you, you climb up onto the onto the luxurious balcony and then pull the ladder behind you <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's so what we should we, we, we should be building more ladders and putting them down there. And the trick here's the here's the thing that the wealthy, the, you know us wealthy, need to understand. Uh, that is that our prosperity in the Western uh, democracies has never been greater than when the working people were paid the best. And you know, if Bezos is thinking he's making not enough money yet. The way for him to make more money isn't to hoard it. The way for him to make more money is make more well heeled customers for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we start being generous with that 2% of the wealth of the selfish wealthy above fifty fifty million 50 million dollars, those guys, they, instead of just making 18% a year on their billions, they'll be making like way more. On their billions, way more than two percent—that's for sure. That two percent could not be spent better by them than invested in the human relations, the, the human resources of 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 the, of the people in America first, and the, and the whole world uh, beyond that. Uh, you know, there one one of the fundamental um, principles of conservatism is uh, the uh, accumulation and uh elaboration of property right um one of one of the most for sure one of the most important uh elements of property is our planet and every every good conservative knows you don't degrade the, the capital for 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 operating profit right for operating you know you, you know you don't you don't degrade the planet. You, you know you 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 have to keep your car in good shape if you're going to be a taxi driver, <laughs> right? We have to keep the planet. But even more important aspect of capital uh, than the planet, Shelby, is the human resources on the planet. And if we fail to develop those human resources, say say if eighty percent of our planet is not developed as human resources, it's, which is not a bad guess right now compared to the way you and I are living. Um, it, you know, there's five times less of a chance of getting another Einstein, right? There's five times less of a chance of, of, of getting another, uh, you know, a, a, a bunch more super creative people out there that, that will t- turn, t- turn their, their uh, capacities to solving these problems. When we develop the human resources we also develop wealth because those people will you know somebody who all the best they can do now is um you know uh scrape some food out of the ground in uh you know in somalia um we develop their resources and they they can start doing um somalian folk tales in 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 like uh, graphic novels online and you know sell them for 35 cents or whatever it is and make a living and and you develop your own human resources yet that is developing wealth remember productivity there used to be this word called productivity you know keeping 80 percent of our planet's human resources undeveloped is certainly not a productivity move (laughs) it's quite the opposite of it really well we're in an age where we need
0: everybody to be as smart as capable as smart all and people, as capable as possible it's like all hands on deck right now all hands to on deal deck
1: with all, serious things all crew and pull and in and, and in really good shape pulling on the oars yeah <laughs> everybody yeah. pulling on the oars and, that's, yeah. and that and we're and that is going to happen and the, and i think the reason i'm so confident about it is just because the alternative is so evident and uh, the, the result the you know the 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 effects and the failures of the of the alternative are so evident to us all now partly because of this process that you and i are indulging in now as a you know uh, instantaneous communication across the world i'm really fascinated by what's going on in ukraine with this minute to minute reporting about you know each death and you know we didn't used to do that but that and that's because the Media used to kind of, well, you know, it's not, that it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell Nescafe very, very well, to put, right? But nowadays it's different because the, the, you know, the main media outlets don't have a monopoly anymore. And so we're all watching what's happening and Vladimir Putin is facing something that he never really anticipated. And that is a world of people who know who's lying and who isn't in the instant, Right. And he's he's in deep trouble now. And what we're I think what we're watching is the unraveling of um, the, the 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 basis of power that those guys have, including China. You know, people know what's going on, and you can't stop. Particularly with this internet now, right? We've got all these these young guys are smart enough. to, to You know, the great China, inter, uh, 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 you know, uh, wall of uh, uh, of. Uh, uh, IT is um, not effective, because nobody knows better than young people how to beat firewalls. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And I think every, people, we're all well informed. And that well informed is what's going to make it so that guys like Putin and guys like the, Charles, the, the Koch brothers and the rest of that cannot pull off their, uh, their stuff kind of behind the scenes without attention. And it's a wonderful thing to see. And I think all of our children now are going to be watching, A, what's going on, and B, getting really great suggestions about how to deal with things. And I think, you know, for us to for us to, to re, re, retrieve the levers of democratic power and use those two awesome powers, the powers to tax and to regulate, to control uh, capitalism, then we've got, that's the sweet spot. There's nothing wrong with capitalism. There's only something wrong with unregulated capitalism. There's only something wrong with untaxed capitalism. If we're going to, like George Harrison said so sappily, maybe about 30 years ago, it's gonna take a whole lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it is gonna take a whole lot of money. Capitalism is a really good way to make a whole lot of money. The only failure with capitalism isn't in capitalism. The failure of capital capitalism is on us by our failure to regulate and to tax it. I completely agree. I could not agree more. And, and I think there's this
0: um, myth of free market economics where you just let people do what they want to do and it'll turn out well. But there's never been such a thing as a free market. I mean, the, the ability for billionaires to make those billions relies on society and other people besides themselves. It's not like the self-made man. It's like that company relies on infrastructure the government paid for, and education of their employees, and the ability to transport their goods to market, the, the, the trade deals between countries. You know, the internet was started by the government. Like, there's just... There's all these different things that support government or that support corporate profits. But then when you go to tax the profits, they're like, no, you shouldn't. Because, like, you got to let us make money. Like, without acknowledging what they've gotten and, and been helped by. And who's by. paid for it. Yeah, exactly. And, and for whatever reason, that's going to get talked about.
1: The very system that keeps their ownership of money secure right our our, our 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 democratic institutions of government right are what makes those guys safe to to, to hoard all this money
0: yeah right? yeah and
1: and that should not be coming free right yeah they should be, they should be paying a fee for that awesome service that nobody even mentions right but our banking system our bank our banking system it's what makes it safe for those guys, safe from kings, safe from, on you know, our, our military is what prevents people from, you know, Ecuador coming up here and, and taking, you know, all of the money that's in America, right? But that security with which they hold their money is invaluable and free to them. Yeah.
0: Well, and if they there's, don't a robust, uh, there's a court system, you know, for enforcing mm-hmm. contracts there's police and firefighters you know to protect your business wherever it it's hospitals to know. keep
1: your workers healthy yeah there's so many universities rooms. to keep universities and high schools to keep you know technical schools to 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 train all of your employees on whose backs you make all your money right so they they, they you know there's no justification for them to not support that in very good measure and it doesn't, like, once again, I'm going to underline this. It doesn't take a lot of money to do all those things. About 2% of that wealth above $50 million. You know what? There's uh what is this? Uh, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax of 2% on everything above $50 million a year um, would touch 75,000 people in America. Yeah.
0: That's and right. I don't
1: need to tell you that that means 340 million 25,000 <laughs> who it doesn't touch.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's an imbalance there that is so easy to correct. All we have to do is the 65% that's not uh you know the minions of the selfish wealth that are the selfish wealthy themselves. Um all they have to do is come out and vote. All they have to do is get involved in the political process and retrieve Unto themselves the levers the levers of the powers to tax and regulate. And then use them fairly. Because if we use them fairly, 90% will come out and vote. Mm-hmm. And you'll never hear about a gerrymander again. Right. You'll never hear about a voter lineup. You know why? Because voters are gonna make sure they don't have to line up anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're gonna make sure that, that we can vote safely on the internet. One little click. The last thing in the world the selfish wealthy want is us to be able to vote with one click on the internet. <laughs> because then all those people who used to stand in line are going to actually vote now. Yeah.
0: So we've talked about a wealth tax as a way to you know, get essential money from here to where it's needed. Um, one of the pushbacks I hear from people about taxing wealth is the idea that wealth is a part of the economic engine. And so wealthy people will say, well, if you tax all my wealth away, I won't be creating jobs. I won't be creating businesses. I won't be investing that in economic activity. And Did you that notice it'll that leap you just made?
1: Did you notice that leap you just made from 2% to all my money?
0: Yeah, yeah. But that's how you, it's framed. I mean, that's how I hear people talk about it. You know, well, that's and, not my that's, belief. I'm just reporting what people say, but, no, but you know, they make it sound bullshit. like a huge burden. So yeah. um so well, if we, it would we, not actually be noticed by wealthy people, why do they resist it so much?
1: It's just the nature reaction. Yeah. You know, it's like selfishness. It's not lack of imagination. You know, if we, if we, if we go down that road, it'll never stop until all my money's gone. Well, that's not right. It'll stop at 2%. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because that's all we need. And we just have, we just have to retool our thinking about that a little bit. The problem when those guys, we waste all of their, you know, it's kind of like wasps. How much, how much time in our life do we spend worrying about wasps biting us? And then how many times have they actually bit us? <laughs> couple times. You know, and that's that. That's well, a couple, yeah. But that's that. That's the sort of thing that these wealthy guys are doing. They're making that wasp argument. You know, yeah. if I, if you know, if you let one wasp bite me, then they're all going to. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's not. It's just not. It, it. It's not. It's not a supportable rational argument any longer. Yeah. You know, but I think. I think. And the and the answer for most of them, is, to encourage them to. Think of the productivity that they'll be creating in in human resources. Uh, And the the way to do that is to ensure them that that's what we're spending the money on. 20% of the wealthy will never buy into that. And that's why we have to use the powers to tax and to regulate, to force them. We don't like the idea of force, do we? Yeah. But 80% of the wealthy people, we won't have to force. If we charge them 2% on on their wealth over $50 million, they'll just pay it. And 20% will argue about it and we have to litigate with them and take it and freeze their stuff and do all the, do all the things we're doing. And I don't, you know, the, the other thing that they'll say is, well, then I'll, I'll just go to France. But guess what? France will like this idea too. And they won't let it go on in America for one year without it going on, without the whole EU doing the same thing too. And then you're down to, well, you know what? If Charles Koch wants to go live in Moscow, I'll let him. That most of his assets are in North America, and we can freeze them. We're watching right now actually something that's really, really instructive about the way our future is going to be handled, and that is this astonishing leap that we've made with using the international banking system to bring force to bear on, rather than military force. And we're going to what we're going to, what we're watching is the future. What we're watching is the way that we're going to force. Uh, uh miscreants to get back in line
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah i totally it's, it's, agree it's it's very encouraging to me to see how quickly for instance how quickly sweden uh, switzerland decided to step away from their tradition of uh from their tradition of um uh, neutrality for the swiss banks to say you know what if you're as big a prick as putin we're not going to support you anymore we're going to open our books on you (laughs) right and because they know well enough now that there are only about 175 people in the world they need to do that to (laughs) yeah All all the rest of them will be happy to bank in switzerland for you know there's a lot of people who don't bank in switzerland now because switzerland has been so uh amoral about um you know how you know jewish wealth was treated after the second during and after the second world war and you know all all the the sort of criminals that they've they've harbored there and and switzerland is realizing that you know they don't need that to be prosperous and it's a wonderful thing to see it's a wonderful thing to see how uh you know putin can't you know use his credit card
0: (laughs) right (laughs) right yeah Well, these economic tools being used right now, my hope is that everyone will understand the capability of using these for other problems to be solved in the world. I mean, to be used as a general tool to reduce military conflict and keep bad people from doing bad things, but also these tools can protect the climate and protect nature. I mean, there should be economic sanctions for tearing down a rainforest that is needed for our future safety or to protect the oceans or to stop over consuming nature, you know, in in horrible ways. I mean, these economic sanctions can um, sort of enforce an agreement where like, hey, we're all going to protect the planet right now. We're all on board and these sanctions are going to keep us all on board so that we all do it instead of having some people bail and, you know, um, destroy nature for economic benefit. You know, these kinds of economic tools can, like, keep everybody on board and keep everybody doing it. Um, It's pretty essential, you know, to develop this.
1: It's remarkable and it's super peaceful, too. Yeah, way better
0: than war, you know. So... As we're talking about international things and related to this wealth inequality, you know, I think that taxation at the national level is part of the solution, but it's imperfect and it's only part of it because we're now in a global economy where people can move their money around, either as individuals or as global corporations, and. I think if we rely only on national governments to get this done, people are just going to move their money to somewhere else that either has a lower tax rate or just has a weak government that's understaffed and does not have the capability to enforce. So it really feels to me like we need an international system to deal with this international global economy that we have to
1: tax properly what do you think about this I think we definitely need international cooperation uh, I, whether a system yes uh, an institution probably but I think just natural market uh features I think are are going to you know in in I anticipate that you know this it's just by almost by nature people will go this way you know and one of the one of the things we're seeing is that so where's a guy going to go? I mean, if he if if all of the so-called Western nations uh, evolve into this view of what, how we should be using our wealth, which is to say to enforce responsibility, um, there there might be a place like uh, uh, you know the Grand, the Cayman Islands, or you know there could be places like Malta and Isle of Man and places where people can escape uh, and avoid taxes, but. You know, Shelby, the American government is really, really good at figuring out who's avoiding taxes and how, right? And so is everybody else in the world. But one of the things that we're doing with our banking system now that we've never done before, and it's really super powerful is, you know, or that I think we're going to be moving towards this quite quickly. And that is saying to a bank like the banks in Cyprus that the the, uh, oligarchs love uh you know that are then connected to Deutsche bank and then are connected to citibank <laughs> right we all america has to do and here's how much power america has all america has to do is say to all of the banks that use the american banking system if you deal with putin your bank will not be able to use the american banking system we will not let deutsche bank use the american banking system all they have to do is disclose which assets are putin's and then they can come back so you know once this what what's this once this shoe drops the other one's going to drop really really quickly because it so makes so much sense for all of the con- the countries in the world to improve their tax collection and their financing their resources you know the cheat to reduce the cheating and and the avoidance, um, and then you know the wealthy are going to be able to say, huh, you know what, I'm going to go to uh, I don't know Moldova. <laughs> I'm going to go <laughs> I'm going to go live in Azerbaijan. Well, you know what, let them. But in the meantime, I think American const- uh, I think the American banking system and and uh, enforcement systems are smart enough to grab all, you know, they, they, they won't get away with money. They can go there if they want, but they still got to use the banking systems to access their money. And Putin is facing that this morning. You know, he's, he's really, really tough as long as he can use banking systems to access that, access that 600 billion in foreign denominated capital <laughs> foreign exchange that he has. But if he can't touch that, he's limp. Yeah, I agree. Mortally limp. Yeah, these
0: um, tools that more developed countries have for taxation, I agree that these should be used in this way. Something I worry about, though, is that without a system of redistributing that money internationally, that it will simply further the wealth inequality between countries. So if we just pick on Jeff Bezos for a second... You know, he is CEO of Amazon, which is a global company that sources goods from around the world and sells it to people around the world, making billions of dollars. If that is simply taxed in the United States because the company is headquartered in the United States and that's where Jeff lives, then that tax money is just going to sit in the United States and be used by Americans. But the money was made around the world, including by other countries who really need the money to take care of these existential threats so we don't all die. So that's my worry about relying only about on, on national governments to handle this international situation. You know, and, and that's why I would really push... I mean, one of the elements of a stronger United Nations that I want to see and that we're going to push for is to be able to redeploy money internationally to where it needs to go instead of just sitting in a, in a country government. Do
1: you think well, we need that? Of course. Yeah, we, of course we do. And I think that you know, the world is going to understand very quickly once they start going down this road that um, it's, not, um, it's not expensive to develop the third world. It's not expensive to develop Malawi. Indeed, it's expensive to not develop them. Yeah. Because yeah. we're losing the prosperity that would come from the productivity of if, if it was more developed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: And, you know, and when we decide that that's the development is the key, all of a sudden now we've got a million new jobs, teachers, doctors, finance guys, lawyers they can go out to all these countries and help people establish their systems for justice for you know micro justice microfinance <laughs> micro education micro health all of those things so we'll travel the world we'll get to know each other and we'll all and then then Malawi will be buying stuff from us you know i mean if you want to get really mundane about it you know you you know you go back to that idea i have of um, grooming better customers <laughs> but that's the smallest part of it the biggest part of it is the joy that comes from receiving gratitude when people are grateful they warm us in a way that money never will or that power never can you know I mean I I I I run into people frequently who I've forgotten about a long time ago who tell me I, I saved their lives what do you mean you save your life well you know my daughter got in an accident in ecuador and we couldn't medevac her out you gave us five thousand dollars and now she's you know a professor at yale <laughs> right and and i go wow you know or you know my kid my kids said uh, you know playing in the play, play playing the cello in cincinnati you know in the orchestra and i go wow is that right because you know we helped 75 teachers here in western canada music teachers you know and one of the some of their students you know it's just so you know that and then when you know when i get news like that shelby it's that that it makes my day in a way that making a few thousand dollars never did right. <laughs> even when a even when a few thousand dollars meant something to me yeah because it's like you know it's it um it's a crystallization of the unity of the human spirit right yeah i think that the, the thing that the rich people you know i scribbled down you asked us, me a question uh, earlier about um you know what sorts of things drive people to cum- to accumulate all of this money and you know i'm, I'm pretty sure that it, people strive for wealth in our society for much the same reasons that we strive for celebrity because the payoffs are the same you live in luxury you have power people have to pay attention to us right the most important thing that we can pay to somebody is attention and when we pay attention to people don't worry they're touched they're impressed and they want to not they want they want to give back and they want to pay forward they want to just, they, they want to become part of that. And so, you know, I think, you know, there will be a time between starting this ball rolling and it, you know, getting the Sisyphean, Sisyphean ball up to the top of the hill when, you know, some people will beat it to, you know, uh, to Russia or, they'll you know, they'll beat it to some, uh, Liechtenstein or some, you know, some country that's not playing ball yet, but. Those guys will, it it, it just won't last long. There's two reasons it won't last long. Those spoiled, selfish, wealthy guys don't want to live in a third world country. They want to live in New York. You know, they want to live in London and Paris, and they want to live in Barcelona. And you know, they want to live on the Med, (laughs) right? And those places, wherever there's affluence, are dependent upon the American banking system, period. And, you know, a government in, in proper hand. You know, th- this thing that's going on with freezing money would never, ever have happened under a Trump government. Just think about that. Yeah,
0: real true.
1: Whatever you might think about Joe Biden, he's brought us into a world where Switzerland gave up neutrality. Yeah. 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 And it's you know, awesome to see. Super yeah. encouraging to see. Yeah, it really think is. Of, it was always it was always super disappointing to me that people disregarded that uh, that corrupt uh, um, disregard for that power, and it was all because well, banks well, we don't we want we want banks want these guys to be want to put their money. Banks like to have great big capital assets because it makes them more powerful and more effective. Um, but you know, there's one thing they need more than that money. And that's approval from the American authorities. <laughs> you guys are really, really strong. And finally, we've gotten to a place where um, we're going to exercise that power for good. And that's a that's an amazing thing. Not 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 exercise it for selfishness. Exercise it for good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one of the things
0: I like about. Um, what you've been saying around wealth is that it helps us maybe get into the minds and psychology of wealthier people. And I think that's really important for this conversation because I've heard so many times when people simply label these people as greedy and selfish and leave it at that without trying to really understand how people think, even in a compassionate way. Like really understand them as a human with feelings and emotions and desires and like really try to get to know what's driving people. And so, I mean, the the kind of change we're proposing or that we want to see, part of it will happen through citizen power. Just trying to change governments to, you know, um, make things happen differently. But because wealthier people have such a grip on power in our political systems and our economic systems, if we can also change the culture around them and change the psychology around them, we're gonna have an easier time. So we need to start understanding how people think and then how can we get them to think differently? How could they be surrounded by a culture that supports more generosity, or supports more fairness across society and maybe discourages like celebrating wealth, you know, or ostentatious uh, you know, consumption or, or that kind of thing.
1: So ostentatious accumulation.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, more zeros on the bank account. I mean, you know, a right. lot of people they can't even they can't even spend all the money they have because it's just so much. It's just right. more zeros.
1: Well it, and it, what what we have to do is demonstrate to them that we know better we know better than we're showing how that money needs to be spent. So it's going to take you know it's it'll take development and it'll take uh, lots of uh, innovative thinking and um, uh, some for some people that just you know um, Charge ahead with this, notwithstanding all of these. Well, what if this and what if that? And then people will see. I think that you know actually it's better for wealth to um, to invest it widely than to hoard it. I, I've, I've said before that you know hoarding is kind of the wet dream of wealth because it you know it it's you know it it it, it, it doesn't it comes it comes without any of the um, love. It only comes with fear. It comes with fear that somebody's going to try to take it from me. You know, that's the whole, the whole mentality of hoarding, is that I, I got to protect this from somebody else taking it from me. Um, and the, but the, the, the love of wealth as compared to the wet dream of it uh, is that one of the grandest benefits that come from generosity is gratitude. The dividends of generosity is gratitude. And gratitude makes for um, super-responsible communities. Yeah, (laughs)
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this this tension I feel because um, I want to support more generosity by people with wealth, to just share it with the world for good things to happen. At the same time, You know, I think of somebody like Bill Gates, who made a ton of money at Microsoft and is now using it um, to support public health efforts around the world. And, And I support most of those efforts. I mean, I'd much rather he do that than like buy more mansions, right? But the world is set up now where we have to wait around for a software developer to come and be an expert on public health Like, we've already had experts on public health for decades who were not resourced properly. Like, but instead we're waiting around for a billionaire to decide he wants to do something, you know, instead of just getting that money toward the experts who already know what to do. Um, Or like Jeff Bezos, he gave $10 billion toward environmental efforts recently, which is great because we need the spending in those areas. But, like, Bezos, he's not a climate expert, you know? Like, so we're sort of trusting him to be an expert in something he's not instead of having societal systems that already know what to do and already know what the priorities are and, and get the money toward them, you know? So it's, it's this double-edged sword. You know, I want to support more generosity, but I also want to be... Humble about what that actually can accomplish when it's divorced from um, societal decision making.
1: It's all a package. It's one package. I mean, we have to advance on all fronts at once, and one of one of them is to encourage wealth, and the other one is to encourage responsibility. <laughs> right, and. And when we do that, I think everybody, including the selfish wealthy, are going to understand, actually, this doesn't really cost much at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, it's at, at I'm going to say at worst, break even. Right. Right. Cause, cause now people have enough money to buy those $400 runners. You know maybe what, now you just, can make a thousand dollar runners and they'll buy them too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe we need to just hire some people to crunch the numbers for these individual billionaires and just be like, no, look, this is all it's going to cost you. It's really not that bad. I mean, are they are, misunderstanding they, it? Do, have they not run the numbers themselves?
1: Well, it's a knee jerk thing, right? You know, you can't, you know, you can't, the, got, they've they spent their whole lives telling us that government screws up everything it does, right. Can't do anything right. And every time they stick their money in their pocket, that's highway robbery, right? And, you know, those are the, the kind of fundamental precepts of, uh, of wealthy society, but they're wrong. <laughs> government, you know what, you know who wants us to think that is the selfish wealthy, because as long as they can discourage young people from having faith in government, then those young people are going to go mountain biking instead of voting. And that's what they want, because they want their 35% to be in charge. So the more, the the, the more, you know, we say uh, government can't do anything right. And every, and all they want to do is stick their hand in my pocket. Um, we have to, you have to change that attitude by saying, no, we are the government. We have to get involved and elect people that we know will use the money responsibly, right? and campaign against the ones that don't. Campaign against the ones that want to use it to um, support selfish hoarding. And, you know, I think it's not that, and and I'll grant you, Shelby, that that's not gonna solve our problem uh, this year or next year, but it's gonna solve the problem in my granddaughter's lifetime. Mm -hmm. Almost certainly. Yeah, yeah. Because as soon as people see that there is, besides all the other uh, moral and uh, the, 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 the tremendous dividends of gratitude that we'll be receiving there's also profit in it
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well in the kind of shift that you're hoping for um, I also hope for and I think it may be well I hope it's more possible as humans wake up to the threats that we're facing I mean I think we're in a new age where Climate change has started to become a mainstream issue and get talked about. We're all painfully aware of pandemics. So we now, the mainstream public is starting to become aware of these huge global catastrophic threats. And the current way of managing financial resources is just not going to cut it anymore if we want to survive. So... I I hope a new conversation will happen that then drives these policy solutions, you know, like the kind of things we're talking about. I I hope. My fingers are crossed, you know. We'll try to push for that.
1: I think that promoting the the principles that I do, you know, what I call universal rights, you know you know security integrity of the person reasonable access to food clothing a shelf reasonable access to the tools of self-improvement medicine justice and and uh finance uh in a healthy environment um if we if we embrace those principles we can't make any mistakes and as long as we're advancing those principles the institutions will follow The institutions won't follow until we demand those principles be, um, embraced. Right. So it's a, it's, it's kind of, it's time to stop waiting for institutions, uh, to invent these things and push them on the institutions. And the way to do that is to increase the popular awareness of the principles, right? So instead of a bunch of kids running around saying, oh, government, uh, they can't do anything right. I hate government. I hate, I hate, I liked that guy. Then he became a politician. Now I hate him. <laughs> Why? Because he's a politician. That's not, you know, the pe- people who have earned that, um, you know, bless their hearts, they deserve it. You know, the Ted Cruz's of the world and the Mitch McConnell's. Uh, but that's not the institution's fault. The institution itself is a treasure. The institutions of constitutional democracy are the most profound treasure for ordinary people that our human species has ever developed. And for us to blame it on the institutions is just wrong. If anything, it's the officials, not the office. Yeah, Well, and these things
0: happen, these bad things happen when citizens are not properly using their institutions and managing them. You know, That's so right. I, I I really believe that whatever wrong happens in the world is usually because citizens are not being active and engaged enough in the right ways. Like, it is really based on citizens to make things work. And I know that people often feel disempowered by... You know, a complicated um, government and life and society, and, it, and it's hard work, but really it's all we got, because the political and economic leaders in our society have not gotten it done, and the systems as they're constructed um, have not been working, because we haven't been using
1: them right. Well, they've been working for the wealthy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know why? Because they show up. Right. Yeah, and they vote. can pay more people we to show said, up on their behalf. And that's right. And and, so, and and they're and they're winning with the 35% minority because of that. And the only thing that we have to do is show up. Yeah. And take it back from them, right? And then, then the institutions will work properly because they'll be in uncorrupted hands. Yeah. Right, right? on to show us actually care. A toast to showing up. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. I I heard a wonderful thing on uh, the Lincoln Project. Uh, A a fellow was saying, you know, yeah, it takes, you know, you need your left wing and your right wing to fly a plane, right, or whatever, to be a bird. You need the left wing and the right wing for the bird to fly. He says, but when my plane's going down, I'm heading over to the left wing. Mm. And, And then you say, why? Well, because... The left is more concerned with humaneness, humanity, community, responsibility to those less fortunate, caring about people. People. The left cares about people. The right cares about property. We do need both wings. We need to own our property securely. But we can't be blinded by that. We have to remember, if, we, if we're staying on the right wing, the the plane's going to crash because the left wing's going to be starving, <laughs> right? And you know, here's a, here, here's another metaphor that I uh, that I like to describe this. Here's and it's why we have power over China. If China alienates the West, which they are in danger of doing now by chumming up to Putin. Um, they what they have to i know they realize this i don't think i don't think their support for putin uh is is uh, durable uh and i think they know it but because if we do what we can do i mean without us china is a shopping center with an empty parking lot and they need us a lot more than we need them we can make little doohickeys right <laughs> They they only make them cheaper, and they got to play ball with us because they need a full parking lot at their shopping center. And so, you know, this economic reality is the way that we we have, we have to relook at the at the whole the whole big picture, because you know those are the powers that, those are the powers that we sh- that we will be if we're going to advance civilization by adopting these principles that I promote. Those are the powers that we're going to use to enforce it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and what you're describing is the growing interconnectedness in the world. You know, we have a truly global economy that's tightly connected. In in all our various countries, because it's so interconnected, we can't really do it without each other anymore, at least with, not without a lot of hardship. And so we have to manage this shared space in a different way it's not just about like what's best for my country or what's best for me but it really is a shared space it has to be maintained mm-hmm. as a shared space and we just haven't been
1: mm-hmm. so yeah no we we've, uh, we've only and, and this is new for our species we, you know we have to come to terms in our generation if not mine yours <laughs> we have to come to terms in your generation with the abject fact that earth is one community Mm -hmm. and we can no longer sit back and comfortably say well isn't there just some way we can sort of get along with this putin guy i mean there must be some basis upon which we can let him do what he's doing where he's doing it without it disturbed no you can't you can't let guys like that exist in your community we know that in our community we pay police to arrest hoods like putin Inside our community, but when it comes to crossing sovereign borders, we we think of it as something different, and it, it is a little bit different. But we have to rethink sovereign borders. Some things has to trump sovereign borders, and universal rights, I think, is definitely one of them, right? And generosity is another, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. right? But yeah. we can't. So, sovereign border sovereignty works really, really well for some very, very important things, and and right. But these, you know, I call them the three C's, climate contagion and constitutional crises. The constitutional crises, I mean, trust in government, trust in authority. You know, those three things we can't, you know, just consider our own community and forget the rest of the world. Because then guys like Putin show up and guys like Putin do what guys like Putin do. And there is no getting along with them. If we let them get away this time, I don't have to say what I'm going to say next what's next (laughs) Right, right. and there will always be something next for a guy like him so we we, so i think we're coming to a point in our history as a species where nature is forcing upon us those three c's and forcing us to wake up to the fact that earth is one community and we have to govern it the same way we govern our own communities yeah We have to govern miscreant we we have to govern miscreants in the world the same way we we respect ourselves by requiring ourselves to be pro to act as we're well governed right by self- respect out of self- respect, you know we force ourselves to sometimes do the things that aren't the most profitable for us <laughs> right and out of that same self-respect uh we have to to require the same require those who neglect to govern themselves we have to govern them we have to replace their lack of self-respect with our self-respect and make sure they treat they they behave as if they are acting with self-respect right and um you know it's it's just a natural way that the planet has to go because the alternatives are so evident now to everybody else it's not maybe next contagion Shelby. yeah not it's maybe it's happening yeah dozens of next contagions it's going to be frequent yeah right yeah. it's going to be frequent and and you know because you know we've we've with with, with all our jetliners you big old jetliner you know um, they we're uh, we, we've 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 developed a virus delivery system that is global, yeah, and, yeah. and so we, and, and that requires a global response, yeah. You know we've we've developed a um, we've dealt, we've developed uh, an energy system that has global implications, and it requires a global response, like you say. And yes, we need to develop institutions, as you promote uh, to. Um, evolve into those responsibilities because they are the responsibilities that, you know, you know, if, if we're going to take care of our capital, right. Our capital is earth and our capital is human resources on earth. We have a responsibility to take care of it. We have to embrace a whole new view of what it means to be um, a citizen on earth. Yeah.
0: And these ideas have been talked about for at least decades you know, in terms of, like, building a strong United Nations, supporting more world cooperation, and, and it's often been seen as, like, this is what we should do to have a better life for ourselves, which is all true. But now we're at the point where it's really an existential thing. Like, this needs to happen now or else everything's going to fall apart on us because we have such powerful technology and our economy is just so intertwined with everything and we're just so globally interconnected that if we don't manage that, everything kind of goes to hell on us. So it's really this new time for a new conversation about it that's beyond just being a happy family together. It's like we want to continue. <laughs> so <laughs> it's time. <laughs> like, we, there's no, this is not a luxury anymore. Being like happy is subsequent.
1: First, first of all, you have to be. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> right. And so, despite the challenge that's required to make this happen, these international changes, like we just don't have a choice. So we might as well just try. You know.
1: So. Mm-hmm. The sooner, the better. It's the same. The same with climate. The same with contagion. The same with the constitutional democr- uh, constitutional crises. The longer we wait, the more expensive it's going to be.
0: Exactly, and we've already waited right. too long. <laughs>
1: and By that's fifty why years, it's so hard. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But the most important thing I think is to propagate this vision. You know, what is it that makes us the same the whole world over? Can I go into that for a moment? Yeah. I, you know, uh, what the the, the 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 lady that's starving on the desert of Somalia, you know, with with her. Dusty breast yielding nothing but dying whimpers from a fly-bitten, starving to death little baby, right? She and you and I all have the same humanity. We have the same capacity to dream and the same capacity for disappointment. And there is nothing that distinguishes us. All of the things that we take for granted in our society, uh, Shelby, you know that you know these things that I call universal rights. We all have them in free nations. We have all of those things that I list, right? And we take them for granted, and we feel entitled to them. And here's here's the interesting part. I think we are entitled to them. We're entitled to all of those privileges. The most privileged society on the planet, and guess what? We're entitled to them. Those privileges because they're not privileges. They're basic universal rights. And so You know, we think, you know, when we were kids, we were taught that, you know, freedom comes at the highest price We were so earnestly told, you know, and they you have to, you know, you put your shoulder your rifle on your shoulder and go off to war And you give up your life for freedom. And it's a uh, very expensive, right? Well, that is right, except their example is wrong. One of the problems with that is that, you know, if the cost of freedom was uh, being ready to give up your life for it, then I don't know what the arithmetic is, but maybe one in 200,000 of us ever pay that price? That can't be right. Everybody else gets it for free? I don't think so. There is a cost of freedom in my book, and that cost of freedom is everybody who enjoys freedom has a responsibility to strive every day in whatever way is available to them to assure that everybody else who is less fortunate in the Freedom Department is at least on a track to get those same things to which we feel we are entitled. We feel we're entitled to them because we are, we're entitled to freedom. So is everybody else. We have to strive every day to make sure everybody else is, right? So. Those who are content with what has fallen in their lap because of freedom but could not care less about those less fortunate in the Freedom Department have not earned their freedom. They've only taken liberties.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and if they don't start to help others and support a stronger society, then they might lose what they have.
1: And when you help people, they don't bust your balls. Mm. Yeah. Yeah you know how much money do we spend on military in the world I think it's a
0: little over 2 trillion per year and worldwide
1: it's ridiculous and if we adopt the principles that you and I are promoting here now right (laughs) if we adopt those principles that cost is going to go way way down we will still need very very strong police you know take here here you want to get the cops on your side tell them you know what We gotta do all these things so we can stop military and give that money to the police. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But we have to honor public authority. And police have to behave as if they deserve that honor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) As if they deserve that honor, the honor of wielding public authority. I'm I'm a hundred you know, I've been to jail twice in my life. (laughs) And I'm a huge supporter of police authority but it has to be used with justice it has to be used with compassion and sometimes it has to be used with brutality and when you know when the hell's angels kidnap 400 junior high school kids uh, you know and, uh, and and start you know raping them um, we you know in within our community, we don't campaign for a you know coalition of the willing or no. We go out right now and we stomp them. But when it happens in Nigeria, well we go, I don't know, it's across a sovereign border, and you know, they've got different religions there and <laughs> no. We have a responsibility to those people in uh in Nigeria and in Sudan and in Darfur, just as much as we have responsibility for our own children. And that's an attitude that has amazing implications. And one of them is we can turn this planet into Eden. And when we turn it into Eden, we will have deserved it because we have attended to it and produced it and turned it into that. That's what's ahead of us. We have the opportunity to turn this planet into the Eden that the religions always preach to us about. But it's not going to happen when we sit, if we, we, you know, sit back, save our money and go golfing. Sure, go golf. (laughs) You know, we have two responsibilities in our world, in my view. One of them is to conserve it. And there's another responsibility that's even more important. Why? Well, I ask people, why should we conserve it? You know, and they go, well, that's, you know, isn't that obvious why we should conserve it? Well, if it's so obvious, tell me why. Right. And what we'll usually come up with is, well, so our descendants can enjoy it, too. Right. Well, there's the answer. We have two responsibilities. One is to learn how to conserve it. And the other is to teach our descendants how to enjoy it. Our responsibility is to teach our children to love the planet and to enjoy it. And the only way we can do that, children only learn from what we show them, not from what we tell we tell them. So we have a responsibility to enjoy our existence on the planet Earth responsibly. And if we if we fail in that, we we might as well just turn the planet loose to evil, because our kids will grow up and they'll they'll say, "What do we want to conserve all this for?" Well. So after you work all day, you go dance, right? Or after you work all night, then you go golf. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? But yeah. So do some citizen work to, for the world. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a big guy on Winnebago's, but I'm reluctant to judge a guy who's driving a Winnebago because I don't know what he does with the, the rest of his money. <laughs> right? The most important thing is how much we're helping. And then if we waste a little on the side, you know, so what, but you know, if you're, if we're flying around the world, setting up microfinance banks for, you know, micro education systems, you know, what a micro, you know, what a university looks like now. There's more information on this than there is in those huge university libraries the world over. I had one fella tell me there's more power in this little phone than in Rockefeller center, you know, for, 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 you know, call it content production.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. We're in a new world now we're in a new world and we can bring everybody along to exactly the same level of security and comfort that we take for granted because we should take it for granted. The only thing that we're failing on is bringing everybody else along with us. And there'll be so much joy that we get out of that love. Gratitude, positive, uh, it's a positive snowball rolling down the hill, a snowball of positivity. <laughs> and we started this conversation was pushing the Sisyphian rock up the hill. Now we're gonna shove the snowball of love down the hill and watch how it grows. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: When all that love and goodness is so much better than the product you can buy, you know, like
1: the dividends so are better. way more valuable.
0: Yeah yeah Well John, you have been really generous with your time and I've been really enjoying this conversation. Um, is there anything that we've missed? Are there any last thoughts that you want to share that we might not have hit?
1: Let me let me go here. It's kind of back to the same thing that what makes us um, one society, which, which makes us all together. Shelby, the part of us that dreams at night with almost infinite creativity, uh, infinite poetry and meaning, meaningfulness, all that, you know, detail, memory beyond all, you know, um, imagination, really, that part of us that dreams at night does not go to sleep when we wake up. But when we wake up, we allow it to be distracted by all of these thoughts that come through. You know, I've got golf on Saturday and I haven't got my shoes clean. Oh, I need some new strings on my tennis racket. And I got Sherry's coming over for supper on the weekend. And we don't have vegan food. You know, i have got to get enough money to go down to the club. This, you know, and all these, Oh, I haven't paid by tax. I got to send a letter to my account. all these things. And as soon as these ideas come into our mind, we, you know, succumb to them. And what I would encourage people to do is understand that those thoughts that we fill our minds with in the daytime, most of them are responsible, Their responsibilities. Most of them are important things, but they are also one other thing. When they drift into our minds like that, Shelby, they're guests that come to the house without phoning first. <laughs> you know, they just drop by. They're clients that don't have an appointment. And so just for half an hour in a day, treat them like that and just sit quietly, And let that part of us that dreams at night, let it out in the daytime. And every time I do that, something beautiful arises within me, an answer to the problem, a wonderful new way of phrasing things, you know, a a, a wonderful new magic thing. I look out the window and I see a kingfisher fishing and I'm so attracted. Isn't that miraculous all the way his DNA has turned out that this beautiful kingfisher just jump down there and grab that fish. Not that good for the fish, but <laughs> he's making a contribution to life. So there's a magic within us that we don't talk about much, but let's give it a name. Let's call it consciousness. Human beings and beings like us throughout the universe are the vessels the universe is vessels of consciousness. We are the universe's, if consciousness exists in the universe, and it does because it's in us, we are its vessels. This is where consciousness occurs in the universe. We are the vessels of the universe's astonishment. We are the vessels of the universe's love. If it weren't for beings like us, Shelby, the universe would be vastly astonishing for nobody. That's our purpose. Wake up, get astonished, pass it around. Don't forget you asked me what I want to leave people with. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. <laughs> I'm right there with you.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much thanks for, for this for conversation. Me. This has been fabulous. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm really, and really let-
1: honored to be here. It's a great treasure <laughs> to have people pay attention to me.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Very good. And listeners, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm glad you've been with us today for these uh, important topics. So, And uh, until next time, let's just try to be the best people we can be. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.